Last week, we prepared for a dark Christmas with Isaiah 40. And now, with the day just around the corner, we look to one more lesson from Isaiah 40. It takes a little longer for Isaiah to say it, but he says it so beautifully. Before he told us that the Lord is coming into this uncertain darkness, into Israel's dark period of exile, into our dark nights of December, into our dark year of 2020, right? Jesus is coming to earth. Now, this was somewhat fulfilled for Israel when they ended exile. They got to go home. And it was fulfilled even more beautifully for Israel when Jesus came to earth for them. It will be fulfilled ultimately when Jesus returns for us. And he says he is coming soon. We saw that when he comes, he's going to come with determination and with glory. It's going to be amazing. And there is no mountain so high, no valley so, no, so low that he cannot just change the whole terrain around. He will get right here when he comes. It's a little bit of what it'll be like when he comes in the clouds and splits the sky open. And we also saw that we have to embrace our frailty and his unchangeableness if we are going to receive him rightly. Now, we finish the chapter with one more way that we can prepare for his coming, and that is by turning from our idols. We pick up now the rest of Isaiah 40. We read verses 12 through 31. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for silver its chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers as, of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows upon them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number and calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, 
And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The words of the Lord. That's some rich imagery. And oh, how my heart wishes that we were together so that we could spend a full 40 minutes unpacking the beauty of that. Instead, we'll spend far less time than that. I will leave so much on the table here. We'll just look at enough of these images to get the point. Now, the context here, the story here, is that Israel is going to go into exile. These words were written to prepare them for the day when they would be taken captive by an enemy nation pulled to a land that is not their own and forced to live there. Now, the Lord knew this would last 70 years, but they didn't know that. And so these words were written down to prepare them for that. And it's important that we have no record in history of any other nation ever coming back from exile. This stuff happens a lot. You conquer an enemy nation back in the age of empires. Yeah, take them all away and enslave them. And this stuff happened all the time. It was tragic, but it happened. And once it happened, it didn't get undone, right? The, the people didn't rise up and figure out how to escape and run back to their homeland. It didn't happen. So it felt like it was going to be forever. Well, the point of it, the point of all the pictures, I'll just give to you early. The point is that God is able to deliver them. And so they needed to turn from their idols and trust the Lord God to deliver them. It's a call to turn from idols and trust God. Now for Israel, their idols were literal statues that they would make. And they would pretend sometimes that that statue was Yahweh, the one true God, and worship it instead of God. Or they would pretend that that statue was a different God, Dagon or the Asherim, or there's so many, the Baal, so many that they would worship. They would do it through this image that they would worship in, instead of the God himself. God f forbidden that. He said, no, 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 worship me. Have no gods, have no idols before me. Don't make them. Well, for us, idolatry works a little differently. In a secular age like ours, or in a nominally Christian age like ours, you don't see people carving statues and worshiping them very often. At least you don't often know about it when they do. There are other religions that do, and all the world lives here in America, but by and large, you don't see that. And I'm assuming that you are not tempted to carve yourself something and worship it and trust it to provide for you. So for us, this kind of works by way of analogy. For Israel, the idols were the things they trusted to give them what they were supposed to be looking to God for, the deliverance, the power, all the things that God was supposed to give them. 
We do the same thing in our heart today when we long for things and we look elsewhere to receive it. We depend on something other than God to give us what God alone can give us. Now, metaphorically speaking, figuratively speaking, that thing is an idol. So you may long, for instance, for control. And when things are going your way, you, you're glad. And when things are not going away, you're not glad because your heart wants control, right? So that's a deep desire of your heart. It can be really tempting to look to technology for control because you feel in control of your phone when you're operating your phone. Well, if that's what's going on, your heart desires control, you should be looking to the God who is in control and has a better plan than you, but instead we're using this technology to feel in control, well, we're sort of treating it like an idol in that way. Or maybe your heart longs for approval. Now before God, because Jesus died and rose for you, you have all the approval anybody could want. But sometimes your heart wants that in the here and now, and so you may turn to that illicit lover who gives you approval and treat them in sort of a way like an idol, looking to them to give you the approval that God can give you. Or maybe when you lose control, a lot of us have lost control over this whole, we thought we were in control, the illusion of control is lost, right? I thought two months ago that we were nearing the finish line on the pandemic, and guess what? I'm not in control, and neither are you. And when we don't feel in control, sometimes our hearts turn to comfort and say, okay, maybe if I can't control the thing, maybe I can be comfortable. And all of a sudden, the line at the Culver's drive-thru is around the block because you can eat yourself a nice greasy hamburger from Culver's or delicious fish sandwich or a concrete mixer, and you feel comfort for a moment, right? This is why alcohol sales and drug use have skyrocketed during the pandemic. We don't feel in control, so we turn to comfort. We look to other things to give us what God can give us. Well, this chapter of Isaiah started with the words, comfort, comfort, my people. Comfort comes because Jesus is going to return for us and give to us a more lavish spread than we could ever want for. So the temptation in our hearts is to treat the small creature comforts we have here in the suburbs like idols, looking to them for that inner sense of satisfaction and ah, everything is gonna be okay, right? You bite into that hamburger and you just say ah. You take a scoop of that ice cream and your body just says ah, everything's gonna be okay. You're looking there for what your heart longs for when you should be looking to the Lord God as the only one who provides comfort. So in that kind of analogous way, like Israel looked to their idols to give them the things they long for, we look to all sorts of stuff to give us what we long for. And here's the problem. Ice cream can't deliver you. It just makes you feel good for a little bit. That, that illicit lover, that technology, it, it can't deliver you. Only God can do that. And so the remedy is the same for them as it was for us. It is all of these images. And if you got time today, just spend time reading through these verses and p 
picturing these images in your head. I will just focus on two images, one from verse 16 to show how big and grand God is. I may have said 16, but I meant 15. It says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. So to God, he is so big and so vast that all the nations of the earth, every nation you've ever worried about or if you're a soldier that you've ever fought against or fought for, all of these nations, to God, they're just like a little dust. When it comes to how people drink their coffee, there are two kinds of people. There are scoopers and there are weighers. There are people who say, there are, you know, I'm gonna put four scoops per pot or whatever. It's a scoop ratio that they're measuring. And then there are other people who say, I'm gonna have this many grams of coffee per pot of coffee. Well, Emily and I, we are, we're scale people. We are, we are weighers. Uh, this is one of our favorite things to do in the morning. We will get up in the morning, prepare six cups of coffee. She'll drink two of them. I'll drink four of them. It's really only one mug and two mugs. But the important thing is that it takes exactly 54 grams of coffee to make a perfect pot at that ratio. So we're getting up in the morning, whichever one of us gets out of bed first and gets downstairs, tends to do it. And we're just sitting there tapping it out, tap, 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 30, 40, 50, okay, 51, 52, 53, and then 54, okay. And here's the thing, if you're at 54 grams and you tap again, it probably will still say 54 grams. One little t of coffee is less than a gram. And you do it a second time and you might still be at 54. Third time, you're probably at 55, right? That, that little just tuft of coffee grounds that comes down, it weighs less than a gram. And there's that much tolerance in that 54 gram measurement that we're doing. If I'm putting all this together and make the coffee, Emily doesn't drink it and say, oh, I, I can taste the difference. You put the extra little tuft of coffee in there, right? No, those few grounds of coffee make no difference in the taste. They are that insignificant, less than a gram of coffee grounds. Nothing on the scales. My scale that measures in grams cannot tell the difference. The word of the Lord says here that all of the nations of the earth are as insignificant as that extra tuft of coffee grounds. All of the nations in the world distilled down through water like that would not affect the taste of God's coffee. We are that insignificant, prepared, compared to the Lord God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He is so much greater than anything we can imagine. So many of these images just point to this, right? He puts the stars in the sky, calls them by name, none of them are missing. All of them are meant to make our hearts say, oh, he is great. The other image that it focuses on is the silliness of an idol. In verses 18 to 20, he says, really, in 19, an idol? You're gonna compare an idol to God? It's made by a craftsman. It's made by gold if you're rich and wood if you're poor, right? This is, this is, you can just 
knock it like this pulpit I'm standing behind. That is nothing compared to God. Wouldn't that make an idolater feel so silly to turn from the God who placed the stars in the sky to a thing that you paid somebody 50 bucks to make? Oh, how silly. And how equally silly to turn elsewhere for a feeling of control when we know that God gives control and is in control. How equally silly to put our hope for lasting comfort in French fries. How equally silly to put it in alcohol. How silly to put it in meth or marijuana. How silly to put it in an illicit lover or that image on the screen. That comfort you will get there is so temporary. That approval you will get from some of those things is so temporary when the God who places the stars in the sky, the God before whom all the nations are nothing, that God cares for you and loves you. So the point is to stop trusting in carved objects to deliver you and trust in the unchanging God who can deliver you. Their God was powerful enough to deliver them from exile, so they needed to trust him. In the same way, our God, Jesus Christ, powerful enough to deliver us from these circumstances. Even if the worst should happen, even if our church is forever different because of this crisis, even if we lose friends and loved ones, well, our God is powerful enough to deliver us from death. Even if terrible things should happen to our church as a result of this, well, the church will never die. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. Our God is powerful enough to deliver us, and he is coming for us. And so the closing verses just tell us to put our trust and hope in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And those that do find renewed strength to lift up on wings like eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. It's true that that hope can give you energy now. Anxiety wears you down. Worrying wears you down. If you place your hope in the Lord, it's true that you'll have more energy. Ultimately, though, this is talking about the days when he comes back. And when he does, those who have waited for him will literally fly like eagles into the sky and meet him there. And when we come back down on this earth, we will run and walk with him forever, and there will never be night again. There will never be another long, dark night to celebrate Advent in. The darkness can't last forever. Jesus is coming. So what you must do is look with confidence on what Jesus did to deliver us and turn from any idols. Prepare yourself for Christmas by identifying what those idols are. What are you looking to for the things you should be looking to God for? And turn from them, just renounce them. In the old days, they would have said, destroy them, right? And, and maybe if there's some path you're using to get there, destroy that path. And look with confidence on his soon return. He will return and he will come for us. Sometimes your kids teach you. And one of my children taught me recently. Uh, we were sitting at family worship together. Uh, I lead them through something in the morning and Emily leads them through an Advent thing in the evening. And she asked them, what, what do you think hope is? And the kids kind of thought for a minute, and Lydia, six years old, little Lydia, you guys that are teaching Lydia, y'all are doing a good job. Six years old, she says, hmm, it's like you're waiting, but you're confident. 
I've read a lot of books and I've never heard a better definition of hope in my whole life. Six-year-old wins the game. And like I said, those of you that are teaching her are doing an excellent job. That is the stance you've got to take as we celebrate soon Christmas. Wait on his return. The darkness can't last forever. Wait, but be confident.